Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about radiation in the care of head and neck cancers with Dr. Melissa Young. Dr. Young is an assistant professor of clinical therapeutic radiology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Melissa, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is that you do. Uh, Thank you. Yes. So I am a radiation oncologist uh, with the Yale Department of Therapeutic Radiology, uh, otherwise known as radiation oncology. Um, And we are a team that uses radiation to um, uh, help address cancer care, either um, actually treating tumor um, and eradicating tumor where surgery is not the right option or using it in what we call an adjuvant setting. So I'm uh, part of the head and neck team um, and I'm the chief of the head and neck radiation oncology team as part of our practice throughout all of Connecticut and the Yale Department of Radiation. Um, And my role is to really help lead our radiation team in the care of uh, specifically head and neck cancer patients. So let's talk a little bit more about um, head and neck cancer patients and the role that radiation plays. Um, Tell us a little bit more about how common head and neck cancer is and, and who gets it and why. Yeah. So, um, well, head and neck cancer is the majority of what I treat. It's, it's one of the, um, less common cancers that might exist, although it is about five to eight percent of cancers in the United States. Um, and classically, we used to consider head and neck cancers um, largely in patients who had very strong smoking or alcohol histories, typically cancers of the tongue, the throat, um, tonsils. Um, and um, radiation is one modality in which we can address uh, cancer cure. Um, radiation can be used um, to um, cure certain types of cancers and is commonly employed in uh, larynx cancer, throat cancers, um, uh, tonsil cancer, and base of tongue cancers is, is kind of the primary modality of cure, although it can be used in the uh, what we call an adjuvant setting. So after someone has had surgery, may have risk factors that indicate there might be a higher risk of cancer coming back if nothing more is done. And so radiation may be employed in that um, uh, capacity as well. Um, now, more commonly, we're starting to see a lot of cancers in a non-smoking population. So a lot of people may have heard about the human papillomavirus and its association with cancers and cervical cancer for women. Um, but we're starting to see quite an uptick of this cancer for um, uh, non-smokers who don't fit the classic criteria for head and neck cancer, who are developing cancers either in their tonsil or the base of tongue, kind of being the common areas. Um, and uh, radiation plays a large role in helping cure um, cancer for those patients. So talk a little bit more about um, HPV-related cancers versus non-HPV-related cancers. Are these these different in terms of the anatomic sites in the head and neck that they affect? Are they different in the way in which they present in their biology? 
Absolutely. So um, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but um, classically, we used to consider head and neck cancers um, largely only exist in people who had very strong risk factors such as smoking or drinking. Um, but the um, human papilloma virus cancers or the HPV cancers um, are actually cancers that seem to have a different driver, likely from a, a, a history of infection that laid silent somewhere within the body, often in what's called called the oropharynx. So um, these seem to be more associated with causing cancers of the tonsils or the base of the tongue um, in people who may have never smoked. And often if we meet a new patient who has a new cancer diagnosis and gives us a history of never having smoked, um, our, our highest um, concern is that this likely represents a HPV-associated cancer. Um, in terms of prognosis, um, over the last 10 to 20 years, it's been well established now that the HPV cancers actually can be cured at much higher rates. Um, the um, and in fact, about four years ago, the staging system for head and neck cancer was it was actually changed to reflect the better prognosis for people with HPV-associated cancers. Um, and uh, so we are finding that we were curing patients at much higher rates uh, with HPV cancers, even if they presented with rather large bulky disease. Um, for people who have never smoked or have the non-HPV-associated cancers, while they can exist in the tonsil, the back of the tongue, we typically see these more in um, the oral cavity. So that would include things like the front of the tongue, the gum line, um, the areas along the, the mandible or the jawbone, and also in the larynx or the, the vocal cord area, the voice box. Um, those tend to be a little bit more difficult to cure, usually require maybe some sort of intensification of therapy. And there are a lot of clinical trials looking to see how we might be able to, to intensify therapy for the non-HPV-associated cancers to improve cure. Um, in terms of differences in presentation, um, classically people who present with an HPV-associated virus may actually present with a lymph node mass rather than anything causing any throat discomfort or swallowing difficulty. Um, the, the classic picture is someone presents with an enlarged lymph node in their neck that didn't seem to get go away. Um, it may even be noticed after a cold, perhaps but the lymph node doesn't really resolve and continues to stick around. And uh, persistent lymph node is not typically a normal um, um, behavior for a typical virus. So therefore, um, patients often present to their physicians and then subsequently undergo the workup that identifies that they likely have a, um, uh, an HPV cancer. So one of the things that many people might be asking themselves is that, you know, Many times we hear that everybody has been exposed to HPV at one point or another. It's pretty ubiquitous. Why is it then that some people get HPV-related cancers and other people don't? I mean, if head and neck cancers are only 5 to 8% of all cancers, and yet over 80 to 90% of the population has been exposed to HPV, which is an etiologic factor, why is there that disconnect? Why do some people get HPV-related cancers versus others don't, even though they've been exposed? It's an excellent question in the area of active study. Um, it's it's really thought that for some small, unfortunate group of people, they um, may have had the virus actually integrate into cells in such a way that the immune system isn't able to detect. So it basically lies dormant and somewhat undetected for some period of time um, and may exist then within the cells and 
they seem to hone um, in uh, the non-smoking population to uh, tonsil and base of tongue area. Um, and over some period of time, likely decades, induce some set of mutations that kicks off a cancer. Some people, their immune system at the time of diagnosis completely eradicates all evidence of, of the virus, and there's never a chance for it to incorporate into some cell and lay dormant for decades. Um, so they subsequently never develop a head and neck cancer, but for some small cohort of persons who were exposed um, early in their lifetime um, are unfortunate enough to basically have it rear its head decades later. Um, so there's a lot of interest in um, uh, in how the immune system may play into this and how we might be able to boost the immune system to maybe eradicate any um, low levels if that's possible versus use the fact that this is a virus-associated cancer in terms of how we treat it um, and maybe even someday being able to screen people, much like women with um, um, uh, you know, who have pap smears, um, is there any way to perhaps, you know, uh, with pap smears, we're trying to identify people who may have persistent infection and therefore higher risk of developing a cancer someday. Um, right now, there's no screening tests or anything currently employed in standard of practice, but it is an area of, of active investigation across the country and the world. So do we find that the people who get HPV related cancers tend to have a lower level of immunity, like they may be immunocompromised in some sort of way? It's not typically what we have seen. So um, we have not been able to pinpoint that as being a specific risk factor. We don't find it seems to um, be only in the immune suppressed um, population. Hmm. So that's interesting, especially when you think about the, you know, why it is that some people get this HPV that turns into a cancer versus not it, it, uh, it, you know, what the, the one hypothesis of, you know, your immune system might not be, uh, strong enough to kind of kick it out at, at the time might not, might not play, uh, might not be a central kind of, uh, factor at play there. I, I wonder, you know, when you were talking about the immune system and, and HPV related cancers, do we find that HPV related cancers are, are more immunogenic such that they may respond better to immunotherapy or is that not been found to be the case either? It's also a, a very active area investigation. Um, it's um, there can be some signatures that indicate that by um, using immune modulating drugs that there may be some improved response, but it really hasn't been proven in, in the um, you know upfront kind of initial phase of treatment setting. But there are many active clinical trials all across the United States and the world looking to see if this would play out. Um, we are still trying to understand the true interplay of the immune system um, and and how that may may be utilized for head and neck cancer and if there's um, any greater role for immune uh, modulating therapies for um, HPV cancer specifically. Yeah. You know, when we think about getting back to your particular area of expertise in terms of radiation oncology, um, is, is there synergy between um, immunotherapy and radiation therapy, particularly in the head and neck? Again, um, it hasn't been proven, but there are clinical trials looking to see if, if there might be ways to combine immune-mediated um, therapies and radiation um, to maybe even offer lower doses of radiation to potentially reduce side effects uh, of the radiation or um, classic chemotherapy that may be utilized. 
Um, on the other hand, um, it's not clearly proven. And sometimes the concern might be is that radiation actually does um, also affect immune cells. And if, if you recruit immune cells and then give them radiation, are we kind of um, working against ourselves? So it's, it's, a, it's a very active um, 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 arena of investigation um, when there are clinical trials that have been looking to see if immunotherapy instead of chemotherapy and radiation may be utilized. Um, can immunotherapy and maybe lower doses with chemotherapy be utilized? Um, I think we're going to learn a lot over the next 10 years in terms of, of which combination of therapies may prove to be most efficacious and, and improve an already um, um, high cure rate for HPV-associated cancers. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you start thinking about combinations of therapy, whether we use chemotherapy or immunotherapy and radiation therapy and sometimes surgery, it really brings to mind the whole aspect of multidisciplinary care. Can you kind of talk about the importance of that in head and neck cancer and how that really helps you to decide what you're going to do in the management of any particular patient? Oh, absolutely. So um, I, I couldn't do anything that I do without the multidisciplinary team, which incorporates our, our medical oncologists who administer chemotherapy, the surgical oncologists, specifically the head and neck surgeons who specialize in, in assessing um, um, if a patient is appropriate for surgery and if that may be a, a good modality um, uh, to offer for upfront treatment. Um, so it is a very important aspect of having all team members really evaluate the patient um, depending on a certain disease site, it may be standard of care to offer surgery up front, which is classically of, of a specifically oral cavity, so front of the tongue cancers. But for our HPV-associated population where it's typically tonsils or the base of tongue or, or maybe even larynx cancer patients where, um, a you know, where either surgery or radiation may be appropriate, having that multidisciplinary team evaluate the patient is critical. Our goal is to not only provide cure, but also to reduce side effects of treatment and if there's a way to offer only one or two modalities rather than all three modalities of cancer treatment, we, we feel we're offering um, good quality of life for our patients after their cure. Um, so our multidisciplinary team is critical. We often try to meet patients all on the same day. Um, and we certainly discuss our patients as part of a team so that we can have a nice cohesive plan that is evidence-based to provide the best opportunity for cure, but also for um, excellent functional outcomes. Great. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute, but please stay tuned to learn more about radiation oncology in the care of head and neck cancer patients with my guest, Dr. Melissa Young. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, presenting the Susan Barris MD Brain Tumor Webinar, May 18th. Register at YaleCancerCenter.org or email canceranswers at yale.edu. Genetic testing can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Genetic counseling is a process that includes collecting a detailed personal and family history, a risk assessment, and a discussion of genetic testing options. Only about 5-10% to 10 of all cancers are inherited and genetic testing is not recommended for everyone. Individuals who have a personal and or family history that includes cancer at unusually early ages multiple relatives on the same side of the family with the same cancer, more than one diagnosis of cancer in the same individual, rare cancers, or family history of a known altered cancer predisposing gene could be candidates for genetic testing. 
Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Melissa Young. We're learning about radiation oncology in the care of head and neck cancers. And right before the break, there are a couple of points that I wanted to revisit. The first is, you know, you mentioned that in some situations, there might be a role to escalate um, care um, and to escalate the the radiation therapy that um, you're offering these patients. And in other situations, there may be a role to de-escalate. Can you talk a little bit more about how those decisions are made, what factors go into it? I, I would surmise that a lot of that has to do with that multidisciplinary team that we talked about right before the break. But what are the factors that are considered when you think about one way versus the other? In terms of the non-HPV-associated cancers, while we um, provide excellent um, treatment and, and outcomes, there are a group of patients that tend to just have higher risks of recurrence or, or lower survival rates. So while we often initially provide excellent, whether it be surgery or radiation as the initial curative treatment, um, these patients, unfortunately, are still at higher risks of recurrence and still sit around sometimes in the range of only a 60 to 80 percent cure rate, even without, you know, metastatic disease at diagnosis. So our multidisciplinary team is really geared towards being able to provide um, the best in terms of, um, of outcomes, first of all, so cure rates um, and things of the tongue might be first addressed by surgery, but as a radiation oncologist and, and part of that multidisciplinary team, after a surgery has been performed, we meet as a group to determine whether or not there are risk factors that warrant consideration of potentially radiation and or um, addition of chemotherapy as well to, to try to provide um, additional treatment to reduce the risk of that recurrence, whether that be within the head and neck area or elsewhere in the body. So depending on certain factors, um, we carefully evaluate all of these patients to determine whether or not they may be eligible for a clinical trial that might look to actually potentially escalate treatment for higher risk diseases where we know the outcomes aren't quite as good. And this is where exploring whether or not immunotherapies may be of utility and, and help provide better chance of long-term um, cancer-free survival. Um, and, and these are all things that are determined as part of our multidisciplinary team. So whenever we're thinking about escalation of therapy, it's, it's trying to determine whether or not is that adding additional systemic therapy from the medical oncology side, whether that be additional types of chemotherapy or immunotherapies, and how does that interplay with radiation therapy um, and also doses of radiation. Um, in terms of the, the concept of de-escalation, this is really more falls into the arena of um, the HPV-associated cancers. So earlier in the segment, I, I mentioned that the, the cure rates are much higher in, in the HPV-associated um, population, um, such that even the, the um, cancer staging was uh, adjusted to reflect that significantly better prognosis. So patients who five years ago would have been told they had stage four disease, we told them we're still curing you at 90% of the time, five years out. Um, so now we're able to tell these patients they have stage one disease, but our treatments really hadn't changed much. So the idea behind de-escalation is trying to figure out in a very careful, safe kind of uh, evidence-based way on clinical trials on are we able to reduce some 
component of that treatment? Are we able to offer shorter courses of radiation with the same chemotherapy? Alternatively, um, can we uh, adjust the chemotherapy that we provide? Or some some have proposed maybe immunotherapies may be um, of utility here to avoid having to offer chemotherapies that may have some component of side effects. Alternatively, is there a way of perhaps incorporating um, uh, surgery that might be minimally invasive um, and lower doses of radiation and still being able to provide very high levels of cure. A lot of our patients, especially in the HPV setting, are perhaps in their 40s or 50s and so have decades of, of life ahead of them still. And we want to make sure that they're able to enjoy um, that time and, and not have a lot of um, difficulty with their ability to taste food the way they want or the ability to produce saliva to induce, uh, enjoy the foods that they normally enjoy. Could we reduce scar tissue um, by lower doses of radiation, if at all possible, that might help reduce tightness in the neck that may develop um, in the decades to come? So uh, it's a, an active area, again, of investigation. Um, we're wanting to be mindful of this because the last thing that we want to find out is that by de-intensifying or de-escalating therapy, now we're also providing lower chances of cure. So it's very important to do this in a very controlled way and not just make assumptions. Yeah. And one would think that your multidisciplinary team, beyond having, you know, kind of the core specialties of medical oncology and radiation oncology and surgery, who really put their heads together to figure out what might be the optimal uh, treatment plan, also includes other people who really are there to try to improve quality of life, right? Um, so do you want to talk a little bit more about um, the importance of those other individuals and how they support that team? Absolutely. So I've, I've spent a lot of time talking about the physicians or, or uh, medical providers in that regard on the team, but none of us can do what we do and support our patients without the assistance of our speech language pathology department. So we sometimes, um, we have, um, uh, providers who are specialized in uh, rehabilitation of speech and swallow that may be affected by either a surgical procedure or the radiation treatment that we use to cure cancer. And so we uh, find it very important to incorporate the, the speech swallow team very early on, even if at all possible before treatment. So as a multidisciplinary team, we can make assessments based on speech swallow breathing function to make best determinations about should someone have surgery or radiation and what might be the effect of either of those treatments on a person's um, functional outcome. And uh, specifically during radiation treatment, we um, find it very critical um, in um, and keeping patients connected to the speech swallow team, even throughout radiation treatment, really encouraging the use of the muscles that might otherwise um, get weak because of the radiation treatment so that as soon as treatment is done and we've established cure, patients can get back to their hopefully normal baseline function shortly after completing treatment to keep and, and preserve that function um, even after treatment's been given. Similarly, our nutrition team is highly critical to, to what we do. Um, a lot of these treatments whether it be surgery or radiation, um, require manipulation and potential injury to areas of the mouth um, and the throat and the swallowing areas. So it's quite natural that without um, uh, aggressive 
management, um, patients may naturally start to have a decline in their weight because it becomes more difficult to swallow, more painful to swallow. Um, and despite our best efforts, sometimes even with our speech swallow team, um, there can be some um, difficulty getting certain types of food down. And so without specific intervention with our nutrition and dietary team, um, patients are at very high risk of developing malnourishment during radiation um, treatment or after a surgical procedure. Um, and these are difficult treatments to get through, which are going to be made more difficult to get through if malnourishment continues throughout treatment. So our dietitian team is very critical in um, providing nutritional guidance, whether it's different textures, nutritional supplements, um, such as Boost and Ensure, but a little bit more nuanced than that, to really help ensure we can try to prevent malnourishment as much as possible during any head and neck cancer treatment, and then also helping support them through that recovery uh, as soon as treatment is complete. It's natural. A lot of people come to us and say, oh, well, I've got 20 or 30 pounds to lose. But unfortunately, any cancer treatment requires a lot of calories and proteins to heal. Um, so it's quite critical that we ha establish a, a very important goal in terms of nutrition to prevent weight loss, which can cause malnourishment even in someone who might be 300 pounds at the start, um, so that we can continue their treatment uninterrupted um, and provide them the best chance first for cure, but then also preservation of function and quality of life after treatment is complete. So all of these, all of these members, not not just the physicians, but our speech, swallow, nutrition, and uh, social work is also critical here too. A lot of people may have to take time away from work, may have um, travel difficulties, uh, transportation issues, um, and and really need a lot of assistance in order to get through this very complex treatment. And so our social work team is a key integral part in understanding what we can do to help support our patients. Again, with the entire team, um, not just curing a cancer in a patient, but also supporting a patient going through cancer. Um, and we're really trying to treat an individual, just not a tumor. Yeah. And, and the other piece, I think, that you had mentioned briefly uh, when we were talking about the multidisciplinary team is, is really um, clinical research and, and clinical trials. Uh, before the break, we were talking about a number of areas where, where you were saying that there's uh, active areas of, of investigation going on. So talk a little bit about the importance of, of clinical trials and some of the exciting clinical trials that you see coming down the pike that uh, patients with head and neck cancer should avail themselves of. Right. So I, I think um, when we first sometimes discuss um, clinical trials to patients, I think the natural inclination is thinking, oh, goodness, you know, that must be a bad sign if they want to talk about a clinical trial. But I can't emphasize enough that the clinical trials are used in all phases of cancer care and not just when all things are lost and we have no other options, um, specifically in, in head and neck cancer, because we are looking at ways to either help improve outcomes um, at the initial curative treatment. Um, clinical trials are very critical critical, important part of helping move our field forward so that we can um, 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 uh, more carefully find what types of treatments um, might be of utility to help improve outcomes. So whenever possible, every patient is screened for clinical trial eligibility. Um, therefore, that we know that we are providing the highest quality of care um, and providing every option for a patient who is interested in whatever options may exist. Now, sometimes patients may um, end up just receiving standard of care. So sometimes clinical trials are designed such that we're trying to compare what the current standard of care is compared to either a reduced treatment um, or 
or a more intense treatment, depending on the goal or, or um, specific um, question being answered. And so these are um, uh, clinical trials that we um, champion and feel are really important for um, helping move our field forward, but also ethically de decided. Um, these are our clinical trials that have been vetted, usually institutionally as well as nationally, to make sure that there, um, we're not potentially withholding treatments that um, that have established um, importance, but also maybe not making great leaps and assuming um, that something might be better when it may not be. So important, again, um, therapies and, and um, adjuvant treatments that might be incorporated are immunotherapies. I, I will admit, I'm not sure exactly where immunotherapies are going to take us um, in the head and neck cancer, but they've been incredibly promising in lung cancer. And there's been a lot of excitement of how immunotherapies may play a role in head and neck cancer. So certainly in our practice, um, we have patients who would be eligible for with, um, potentially having immunotherapy at some part of their treatment, and we're trying to learn if it's going to help improve outcomes down the line. Um, also, I anticipate some surgical trials coming down the line. It should be very exciting to see if there's uh, ways of also helping um, um, modify how surgery is done, but also help reduce toxicity of surgery down the line. Dr. Melissa Young is an assistant professor of clinical therapeutic radiology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.